on this episode of Starting Point. I played across a lot of different areas. I played a lot, across a lot of different um, audiences, no pun intended, but circles and groups and friendships. Um, and, and look, doing what we do, some of what we do in advancement is about storytelling. Um, and so I do think that some of that early work that I did in amateur high school and junior high school theater and the, the storytelling, the theater of it, has lent itself very well to some of the things we do today. That's Fritz Schrader talking about his experience in high school theater and how it helped set the stage for his career in educational fundraising. I'm Dan Allenby. Welcome to Starting Point. Hello, everyone. I'm pleased to welcome you to today's program. Uh, I am thrilled to have with us Fritz Schrader, who is the Vice President for Development and Alumni Relations at Johns Hopkins University in Medicine. Uh, Fritz, welcome to the program. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Dan. It's great to be here, and uh, it's an honor to join you. Well, um, I, I can remember, and it might even be to the day, uh, back when I had just graduated from college, uh, I went to James Madison University, where I think you went too. I did. Um, I had graduated school. My father, who worked in development, was encouraging me, not so lightly to get a job. And he suggested that I talk to some folks. Um, there was a woman at Johns Hopkins at the time who, who and you're going to remember her name, and I cannot. Jan, Car- Jan Carazza. Jan Carazza. Uh, so she, she uh, was willing to sit down with me, and she said, I, I'll, I'll suggest that you talk to this new director of annual giving that we have, this hotshot named Fritz Schrader. And you gave me, I think, at least 30 minutes in your office, and I'll never forget that. So uh, I always appreciated that. But that that may be 23, 24 years to the day. I, I can't remember for sure. It feels almost like that. So I start. I, I had started at Hopkins in February of 96. So okay. just to, to anchor it, that's... That would have been... That would have been July of 96, because I remember driving around to my father's Avalon. The air condition didn't work. <laughs> driving from Connecticut down the Jersey Pike, and I went to Baltimore and had these informational interviews. And I remember I was late. I can't remember if I had stopped sweating by the time I got to your office, but like the, the perspiration was just soaking. Um, anyway, I can remember sitting with Jan Carazza and several others who said, so what makes you, you know, why is it they think you'd be good at advancement? And I I think I said something like osmosis, as if like listening to my father, who, who talked about development all the time, had taught me anything. But yep. so, uh, Fritz, uh, I want to just go back, if you don't mind me starting. Um, want to go back to your starting point. Um, let's go back to high school. Like, who was Fritz Schrader? What, what before you got into advancement? What were you doing? Yeah, uh, and I think Dan would be fun because you'll you will recognize some common threads. So I grew up in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, um, back when Chapel Hill was a one high school town when the university was not in session. There were about 20, 25,000 people in Chapel Hill. And when the university came back in session, it swelled to 50,000 with all the students. Uh, My dad was dean of students at Carolina for his whole career. Um, And so I had grown up as, you know, kind of a college brat or a college kid, whatever you want to call it. Um, And and the reason that's relevant is because when I think now about why have I been in this field as long as I have, um, not just advancement, but higher education more broadly, it is without question because 
it's what I grew You said osmosis. Maybe it was osmosis because I just, I grew up in that environment. I watched the, the cadence and the tradition of higher education and of college life. And I watched my dad and his work. I remember going to graduations from, you know, being age four all the way up to all the commencement ceremonies that happened in the football stadium. Um, and, and I can remember as a kid, my dad, one of the, one of the groups that was run at his office was the senior class marshals, which were the juniors that would then be marshals for commencement for the class above them. And the night before graduation, there are 50 or so of them night before graduation, um, dad would have them all over for a barbecue at our house. And so, you know, when you're eight and these high school, these college juniors come, you think it's the coolest thing when you're 16 and these college juniors come, you think it's the coolest thing. So it was just such a, a big part of kind of my childhood. So you know, the osmosis point you made earlier is absolutely true. In high school, who was I to answer your real specific point? You know, I was, I was a, a, a mediocre swimmer, but I wanted to be on a team. I wanted to compete with something. Um, I did that for several years, was never very good, but loved being a part of a team, loved the routine of competition and teamwork and training and discipline. Um, I was, I was a theater guy. I mean, I was in musicals from really? middle school through high school. Um, I was, uh, you know, a part of, uh, I have a group of 25 friends, no exaggeration from high school that we are still, if I'm showing you my phone, there's a group text list that we are in touch with each other almost every day. And part of it is because it was a one high school town. So there's just a closeness. But the reason I say the sports and the theater thing is now when I look at, you know, this stage of life. So what was it? I, you know, the, the team environment was important to me, but more importantly, or equally importantly, um, I played across a lot of different areas. I played a lot across a lot of different um, audiences, no pun intended, but circles and groups and friendships. Um, and, and look, doing what we do, some of what we do in advancement is about storytelling. Um, and so I do think that some of that early work that I did in amateur high school and junior high school theater and the, the storytelling, the theater of it, has lent itself very well to some of the things we do today. Yeah. No, I hear it. And I'm, as I'm listening to, I'm also thinking, you know, the, the osmosis part aside, there's just something about college campuses. I don't know if I, I feel comfortable, but like I, I get excited about them. I love them. Like when, whenever I go to a new town, if there's a college there, I just want to walk through the campus. It actually, when, when we went through the pandemic, I actually had a nervous couple of months. Cause when we started thinking like, would, would residential learning as we know it go away? Is this all going to go online? I was like, please don't, because I love, you know, I can't imagine life without college campuses. And, uh, and I don't know if just part of it, I just, in my DNA is I just love campuses. I love the feel of them. The, no, I mean, nothing beats a September afternoon, you know, on the East coast, walking through a campus, the leaves. Oh, yep. I love it. So, totally agree. Totally agree. How'd you get into advancement? So the other half of the osmosis story is my mother uh, was the executive director of the United Way for Orange County, North Carolina, where I grew up, where Chapel Hill is. So as an 18-year-old, you don't realize this. As even a 22-year-old leaving JMU, I didn't realize this. But the blending of their two careers uh, is exactly where I've ended up in a way that was not intentional at all. Um, so the way I got into it is, uh, you know, at JMU, as you will remember, I worked freshman, sophomore, junior year in the dining hall, um, moved from the dish line 
to making omelets two days a week, um, to doing a bunch of different, uh, it was kind of a, a chef's in D, assistant. In D Hall at, at James Madison University, which, in, which I think was torn down. It um, is gone. Yeah, it's, it's gone. I, I still have the 1987 D Hall hat that I wore, the, you know, the, the, the staffing hat. Um, but they yeah, were I selling bricks, you know, like after they knocked the building down, you could actually purchase. You could buy a brick. And I, they I, constructed it. Yeah. Did my, you buy one? No, I did not buy one. My my romanticized memory it doesn't take me to buying a brick from the dining hall. But I worked there for three years. And going into senior year, I remember thinking, I'm tired of working in the dining hall. I got to come up with something else. A woman down the hall for me in my dorm, end of junior year, I was saying this to her, and she said, I'm, I'm graduating this year. I had an internship in the annual fund. You ought to go talk to them. Just take my internship. And I'm like, in the what? She goes, in the annual fund. It's part of the fundraising operation. So I remember going and applying. And I met Ed Cardos, who was the director of annual giving at James Madison University, who now is at VCU. We, we've stayed in touch. Huh. And so I started senior year as the student intern in the annual fund, in the development office assigned to the annual fund. And I, I describe this because it makes me laugh when I think back to it. If you'd asked me midway through the fall, what does a student intern in the annual fund do? I would have said to you, I fold and seal a lot of envelopes and letters and I occasionally go get Diet Cokes for the senior <laughs> staff. That was kind of the extent of what I did. I would sit at tables and literally fold letters, lick, stamp. And then everyone saw it would be like, can you go get me a couple of Diet Cokes? Um, <laughs> and if Ed's listening to this, I know you probably don't remember it that way, but that was my description. Well, then what happened is back then, JMU was running um, both a volunteer student phonathon in the fall yeah. and in the winter, because it was largely a Virginia-based alumni population, they would go out to six different cities and run two weeks of alumni volunteer phonathons. So they'd go to Richmond, Williamsburg, Tidewater, Northern Virginia. And in the winter, Ed got me involved with the student phonathon on campus, which was, you know, student organizations competing for prizes and TVs and stuff like that. And I, I, back when we handed cards out to make phone calls and I'd staff them and do a little bit of training and stuff like that. When we did started the regional ones, he said, do you want to go to some of these? And so, you know, I'm a senior in college, second semester senior. I'm going to Richmond, spending two or three nights in a hotel, helping him run the phonathon for three nights in Richmond and Tidewater in Northern yeah, Virginia. Yeah. And thought, wow, this is kind of cool. So I got nominated. I'm, this is a long-winded answer. But I got nominated to be the student delegate to the Case District 3 conference in February of my senior year. So at the Opryland Hotel in Nashville as a student delegate. Yeah. Um, and kind of got exposed then to this much broader industry, this much broader profession called advancement. And I remember, I can tell you, there was a guy named Gary Smallwood who was assistant VP at Virginia Tech who was there. There were a bunch of people from JMU. And the JMU folks, Ed and some others, introduced me to other people in the Virginia region who had gone to this conference. And I remember having you know, cups of coffee or a beer or what have you with people and thinking to myself, wow, everybody in this field is really friendly and really outgoing and really generous with their time. So I came back from that conference and uh, like you, talked to my dad and said, how do I do this? And ended up writing letters back when there was no email. I mean, I didn't have email. I wrote letters and sent them to about a dozen universities up and down the East Coast, Mid-Atlantic. 
and I got in my 1979 Mazda RX-7, which hardly <laughs> would make it 100 miles without breaking down. And I drove as far north as Philadelphia and as far south as Charleston, interviewing informational interviews with anybody who would accept it. And it, it, you know, my letter said, I'm hoping to be in Charleston later this spring. I pick up the phone. I'd call the vice president, calls at Charleston's office, had no idea what I was doing, but said, hey, I'm going to be there. I really wasn't going to be there. I would just then fabricate, you know, the drive. And I probably had eight of those informational interviews, Charleston, William and Mary, University of Maryland, um, Villanova, a whole bunch of places. So you actually, by sending that out, you actually ended up with seven or eight actual interviews. I did. I did. And a lot of people who said, hey, we're not hiring or no, we don't do those kinds of things. Yeah. But again, it, it the majority of people that I wrote to said, absolutely, come talk to me. I'll tell you about this profession. And I was again struck by how generous people were. You think that still works today? I do. Do people, I, still, do people do that today? Because I remember that's what I did because yep. I was told that's what I should do. But I don't know if people do that anymore. I, I don't think people do it that way anymore. No, I don't. What what uh, my team in my office, Kelly in particular, will tell you is, it unfortunately, because it was so impactful for me at age 22, my policy right now is if you write me and ask me for time, the answer is always yes. Um, and it drives everybody else crazy. But I, I will never abandon the fact that that's how I got into this. And I've had such a successful time is because someone, a lot of people early on said, sure, come talk to me. Well, I know this, this particular podcast episode is very grateful that, that that is your philosophy that you gave us your time today. So, so thanks. So, so which one of those informational interviews actually worked out? So it was University of Maryland. So I had come up to College Park, met a couple of people, and I got a call. I think it was like a week or two before graduation. And they said, hey, we've got a job the phone-a-thon manager, and we want you to apply for it. And I remember applying. I remember interviewing. Uh, my my boss at the time was a woman named Jenny uh, Hubble, now Jenny McDonough. Um, and Jenny Volkman was her maiden name. Her father was the VP for communications and marketing at WashU in St. Louis. Um, and I got hired. Um, JMU actually offered me a job to stay. And I remember having this very long discussion with myself and a couple of the people about staying in Harrisonburg, you know, staying with all the friends and the fraternity house and all that yeah. kind of stuff, or starting and moving to College Park. And I decided to move to College Park for all the obvious reasons. Okay. So I was the phonathon manager at Maryland for a couple of years, then moved into corporate relations for a bit, and then was director of annual giving at University of Maryland for probably three years before I left to come to Hopkins. And what what is it that made you go to Hopkins? Because that so you're an annual giving director at one institution. Did you go to Hopkins to be the annual giving director? So I did, yeah. So it was a it was a lateral move in terms of responsibility. Hopkins obviously a much bigger program. So the annual giving shop at Maryland when I was there was probably five or six, seven people. At Hopkins, it was 18 people or something like that. It was a private institution. Um, it didn't require us to move anywhere physically because I was we were my wife and I were living sort of halfway between Baltimore and DC. So it was just reverse commute the other yeah. direction. Um I hope this is okay to say on the podcast, but I'll tell you, Dan, I, I say this and I, I tell people at Hopkins this all the time. The single biggest reason I came to Hopkins was because we were about to have our first child and Hopkins was going to pay me about $15,000 more yeah. to do the same job. And that was enough at the time to allow her to stop working and be a full-time mom, which is something we both wanted. Um, it was going to be tight, but that was the primary reason. I didn't know a thing about Johns Hopkins. I didn't understand what I was stepping into. 
and the the you know the good fortune I had of being offered the role. Yeah. Um, the other thing I'll say, and for anybody listening who remembers the story, I was the second choice at Hopkins. How do you know that? Um, because someone who was on the search committee that I had known from Maryland, who had also gone to Hopkins, <laughs> said, "Hey, just so you know, you're the second choice, but hang on there. The first choice, and I know I know the first choice, and I'm not going to say his name here." He and I have been friends for 30 years and kept in touch. And we always laugh about that. He ended up getting a great job. Um, and I ended up, you know, with the with the job of a lifetime that kind of opened the door to a long time at Hopkins. But, oh, well, I'm not going to ask you. I'll ask you offline. I'm dying to know who that person was. Yep. Yep. So uh, so interesting. So it actually just it was the offer. It wasn't, oh, this is a bigger program or they're in a campaign or there's something. It was just, you know what, this financially makes sense. You know, and that's probably not fair to Hopkins. I'm sure that I had some level of thinking that was bigger program, private institution, more opportunity. But at the time, what mattered the most to us was trying to figure out how can we have this kid and and be able to do this with Amy staying home, at least for a period of time. You know, it's interesting. And and I I do want to ask sort of about, about the rest of your time there at Hopkins in just a second. But just while we're on this topic, at AGM, we we just we're always doing research, and what are the what are the data points we just came across? Uh, as as the world is trying to figure out what the right balance of remote work is, and as institutions are really being sort of forced to think more seriously about their flexibility to let employees who in some ways are kind of in the driver's seat right now, and I know a lot of organizations are really struggling, but we asked advancement professionals uh, to prioritize what was most important to them in their next career move. And right up there was salary. I mean, salary, I will say it was number one, uh, but the ability to work remotely was, was right on par. Um, yep. So that just interested if we applied what you went through back then, you know, how much a, a young, new, uh, relatively inexperienced advancement professional, if they were given the options and one institution said, yeah, we'll let you work from home. If if that would be the that would be the deal breaker, but I don't know. What do you think? Do you think because uh, you you must? Uh, I don't know. Maybe from your perspective as, as a vice president, do you do you think a lot about the remote work? I do. Yeah, I really do. And I and I, I say that realizing I'm answering this question from a remote location where I am, you know, using the benefit of this yeah. more flexible work environment that we've created over the last two and a half. Well, it's, years. it's summer. You deserve a vacation. I think everybody, <laughs> everybody knows that. Yeah, it, it, but you know, even even here's a perfect example. I'm I'm working these couple of days, even though it's at a, a, a vacation location. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, it, you know, both my kids are in their 20s and I'm watching them step into their first kind of work roles. And I think they have one thing that I recognize in the way they're approaching this, which is being with people, being in the office. Neither of them want to work remotely, even though they're 25 right. and 27. They want to be in the office. Doesn't mean they don't want to have the flexibility to, you know, every couple of weeks take a day and work somewhere else. But by and large, they are driven to be in the office because they want to be around their teammates and the people that they work with. Um, and I would have said that's a that's me from the very beginning. Yeah, you're an extrovert, though, right? You feed off of people. Totally. Yeah, and I think they do too in a different, maybe in a different way, but I think they do too. Yeah, and that's going to be interesting to watch uh, as organizations sort of. To, think through this. I was just talking to, to someone at um, Oregon State University, and he was talking about their policy where they have, so they have uh, core days. They have to work in the office. This is advancement. Everybody at the foundation, Tuesday through Thursday, everybody's in. Yep. Uh, and then you get flexibility options Monday and Friday, but then everybody gets a two weeks work from anywhere you want 
option in addition to vacation and, and as you would i thought that's interesting i mean that's yeah i think i can mean a lot so i think it can too and I, you know i think we're gonna end up in a model close to what you just described it for oregon state where it's you know we're our approach right now at hopkins is three two remote so three days in the office two days remote if you are a hybrid employee and what i would tell you is out of the total organization at hopkins we've got about i don't know right now about 15 20 percent that are fully remote researchers yeah. data processors others who can just do their job remote yep we've got another at the other end about 15 or 20 percent that are fully in person just full stop i consider myself in that category fully yep. in person even though where i am right now but fully yeah, in person. yeah yeah and then the middle ground that's this hybrid ground that are largely three days in the office two days working remotely but i think one of the things we're going to try is for the fully in person and for the hybrid two weeks you can work from anywhere. The, pro the hard part about that, and I was thinking about this even this morning, um, I was on a bike ride and I was thinking, for people who have the opportunity to go somewhere, they go stay with their parents, they go visit friends, they have yeah. a, you know, a college roommate that might have a place in Florida where you go work, that's meaningful. For someone where I don't have anywhere I really want to go work and, and because of whatever opportunities they've had or where, wherever they've grown up or whatever uh, uh, economic restrictions they might have, it's less meaningful. And so what I don't want to do is create an environment where those two weeks feel great to people who happen to have parents who have a house yeah. you know, in Monterey, but not feel great if it's you and you've got your apartment and that's it. Yeah. Um, so you got to think about the implications of that strategy too. Yeah. Yeah. No, that all makes sense. Yep. Let's get back to you and Johns Hopkins. So you started there running an annual fund, you said 1996. So yep. Yep. Uh, what is that? 20... 26 going on 27 years um and you're still at johns hopkins yeah and and now and now you have a lot more responsibility yeah so so that i would tell me about that i mean uh you know some of the some of the people that most people you talk to are have lots of different jobs lots of different institutions but you've been you've been committed to one which is which is really remarkable um so where did you i mean how'd you get from director of annual giving uh, over 20 years ago to uh, vice president for development alumni relations. Yeah, it's, um, I think about this a fair amount in particular when I'm talking with our own particularly new employees at Hopkins in the division. So there's no single answer, right? It's it for all of us. There's this blend of inputs that get to a certain answer. And for me, the blend of inputs is a combination of having the right opportunity to show up at the right time and bosses at Hopkins managers at Hopkins seeing me, taking care of me, looking out for me, and creating opportunities when they needed to be created. So let me pause because I was director of annual giving for four years and then had an opportunity to take on the alumni association at age 32, be the head of the alumni association. And I remember negotiating with Bob Lingren, who was the vice president at the time, saying to him, I don't want to give up annual giving. Can I do both? Can I be you know, head of alumni and annual programs. And so for the better part of five years or six years, I was executive director for alumni relations and annual programs and ran the two. Um, and that was just a, an opportunity that came about that Bob had enough confidence in me and I was in the right place at the right time with the right maybe combination of skills. And it kept me then engaged and challenged and stretching my limits and trying something new um, in a way that was really compelling. And then I went from there and moved into an associate VP where I was managing some of our fundraising units um, and, and slowly but surely built additional pieces of that. And then Bob left and Mike Iker 
came from UCLA to Hopkins and he was the VP for about six or seven years and kept giving me a broader portfolio and more responsibility. And he and I partnered together extraordinarily well. Um, and, and I remember a conversation that he had with me about two years before he left, which was, you know, if it's, here's how this is going to work. One day you're going to walk in and say, Mike, I'm ready to be a vice president. And he said, the only conversation we're going to have is, am I ready to go somewhere where you can be here at Hopkins? Or is it time for you to start looking at other programs around the country? And that, that level of clarity around the way he thought about it was so powerful for me. And lo and behold, when he was ready to go out, go to Ohio State, yeah. um, I think he'd done everything he could to position me. And I built a relationship with the president. And so I was really lucky to be given the opportunity to, um, to take on this role. Um, 10, years, 10 years ago next month, I started. Uh, I can't imagine, though, that there weren't other institutions that were They're, yeah. curious about whether or not you would want to come work for that. I mean, yeah. And, and you how, know, how that, did you deal with that? That's, and that's less about me, more about the fact that anybody who works in this field knows that the, the demand way outstrips the supply of people. Yeah. And so, yeah, I've had lots of, of those kinds of conversations along the way. And I've, I've interviewed for a couple um, and, and been offered a couple and, and for a whole bunch of reasons, um, now it goes back to what I said a few minutes ago, the inputs for why do we stay at a place for as long as I have going back to my dad. So my dad worked at Carolina for 37 years, his wow. entire professional yeah. career after graduate school. So you could argue I'm osmosis, whatever it was genetically, I'm imprinted to be loyal um, to an institution. I am an institutionalist. I, I, I couldn't, I didn't go to Hopkins. I couldn't have gotten into Hopkins. Yeah. I couldn't have survived Hopkins. I am not that rigorous academically. Yeah. Um, but I love what the institution has represented in the world and love the opportunities that it's given me. So I am deeply committed to the institution. But I also know selfishly, Dan, to do our jobs well, I am better today because of 26 years of accumulated knowledge. And every time you leave to do something new, you start that clock over again. Yeah. And I, I, I do believe, and this is my soapbox, one of the failings of our profession is to self-actualize around the length of time that you actually can accumulate such incredible knowledge and wisdom about the institution to be more effective. And we have been so focused on, but what do I do next to get this amount of money or to get this next job or what have you? And I'm not in any way discounting it, but I say that I want to I, I want to stay on this. I'm so curious. So, like, say that in the form of advice to it to the institution. Is that is that who you'd be giving advice to? Institutions I, I, need to do a better job of what? Like, so I'm going to do two. I'm going to say to the institution, institutions, and and I put myself and Hopkins yeah. in Hopkins category need to do a better job of having the kind of conversations with employees to say, okay, so rather than thinking after three years, what should you compete for? Let's let's start doing a phase one, phase two, phase three. What could you imagine doing at Hopkins? And how could you imagine progressing through this organization in a way that allows you to accumulate the knowledge and the, the relationships that will make you so much more effective? Now, let's be honest. The risk in doing that as an institution is if I have that conversation with Dan Allenby, Dan's going to come back two years from now and say, do you remember you told me phase one? Yeah. I don't see phase one. So it's the risk of implied promise that yeah. that puts us in a vulnerable place there but but that's my advice to institutions is just being more proactive in exploring 
those conversations with employee. My advice to employees on the other side is be patient. Be, it, it will all come. Great things are going to come, but it, it, you have to be willing to invest the time and to work at it and to build the depth of relationships that make you effective. Yeah. I, I, you know, I got to agree with that a hundred percent. The, and I get it, you know, I get, it's very, very tempting. And I, I know and relate to, I can think of the earlier part of my career. It was every couple of years. And it did, when you're younger in your twenties and thirties, even it doesn't feel like a long time, you know, yeah. like it, or it does feel like a long time, but I was, you know, I was eager and I, I felt like I knew it and I just wanted to be challenged. I was always sort of blaming the institution for me not being fulfilled instead of sort of looking at myself. But when I look at my colleagues, I step back and I think of people that have really seen like huge success. A lot of times it's people that were just patient and they just, they, they stood there. They, um, you know, these, these institutions go through a lot of change and some of the most successful people just sort of weathered the change, right? They just, they sort of stuck in there um, and then, and let the change happen and, and kept their head down and did a really good job. I think some of the most successful people are also people that were willing to just focus and say, I want to be really good at something. I want to go really deep in this area and be excellent. Kind of what I think I'm hearing you say, you you must know so much about Johns Hopkins. Not that you know everything. And the relationships you have, to imagine to go start that somewhere else, I think that would be unbelievably difficult or impossible, really. I, I, I agree. And because of that, you know, at this stage, I can't imagine doing this job anywhere else. And, and, Part of that is because of the accumulated knowledge and the commitment I have. Part of that is the unique nature of our relationship with so many of our donors, namely Mike Bloomberg and his organization and all he's done for Hopkins. But there's such this neat combination of things that has me realizing there's nowhere else I'd rather do this, full stop. Um, You know, the other thing uh, that you just made me think about um, when we're talking about sort of staying and we're talking about... Uh, commitments and and relationships. Um, I do think as employees, as we grow through these organizations, you you can get tempted really quickly to think about what that next title is or what that next salary is or whatever it might be that would tempt you to look somewhere else. And being honest with yourself about why am I looking? Like, what is it that I am looking for right now that seems to be addressed, answered in something else as opposed to what I'm doing right now? That's a hard, honest conversation to have with yourself. Yeah, yeah. Well, two questions for you, as I think we're kind of getting uh, close to the end of the show here. Um, and I'll, I'll throw them both out there so you, so neither one surprises you. But in, in 26, 27 years, uh, I'm sure there's a lot that you're proud of. Mm-hmm. Um, so question one is, what are you most proud of? And it doesn't necessarily have to be there, but as you think about your career in general, uh, and the second one, maybe a little bit harder. Um, and I can, I'm even remembering a former boss of mine who, who once said to me, uh, Dan, I'm, I'm not any smarter than you, but I'm older than you and I've made a lot more mistakes. And uh, so as you think about your career and maybe some of the mistakes you might've made, are there any mistakes that like really stand out to you? Like, oh, this was a big mistake and, and maybe you learned from it. So what are you most proud of? And What's a big mistake that you had to learn from? Yeah, uh, great questions. And I'm going to give you a couple of answers, quick ones to each yeah. of them, because there's not one single. So, you know, when, when I think about what am I most proud of over the 26 years, it, it has to start with the Bloomberg relationship and his investment in Hopkins. But it has to also start with acknowledgement that I just happen to be the person sitting in this chair 
after arguably three or four vice presidents before me from Rip Haley to Bob Linger and to Mike Iker built the foundation of that relationship. I happen to be in this chair as that relationship and as, as his investments in the organization, in the university are, you know, extraordinary. And so I'm, I am enormously proud of the role that I have played in the succession of his connection and his organization's connection to Hopkins. And I say it precisely because it's not that I did it all at, yeah. in any way stretch. I'm building on some great, great partners along the way who, who are the foundation for it. I like the way you said that the role that you played in the succession of that whole yep. lifelong relationship that this person had with this institution. Yep. I was, um, I was with him on Tuesday in DC and, and we were laughing about the fact that, you know, as, as we well talk about regularly, yeah. his first gift to Johns Hopkins was the fall of 1965. It was a $5 gift to the annual fund. We still have the, contribution card that came yeah. along with that that recorded that gift before the database that we currently use even was a twinkle in anybody's eye um so the, the bloomberg relationship is one i think if the there ever one, was a plug for annual giving i think it was what you just said it, it is let's say it again mike bloomberg's first gift ever was a five dollar gift to the annual. in the year after he graduated yep five dollar gift Unbelievable. yep um, and he tells a great story about his parents and the value of giving that existed in his family as a as a child and he grew up in a, a very middle income family in boston um so i think that's one i think the other thing that i'm most proud of dan is is the team the organization at hopkins and the sense of community that we have created around the 500 or so professionals that work in development and alumni relations at hopkins it is something that is very important to me we are all doing this great work on behalf of this great institution and there are around the organization lots of people who have similar jobs in different parts of the organization so there's this enormous community of people that we can learn from and we have invested deeply in that team and i'm really really proud of that great um you um, know go ahead no i was and then the the other side of that the mistake yeah the so yeah. i'm going to tell two parts of it so the first is a mistake that I didn't make, but I ways, but I think about it all the time. So when I was in my, when I was at Maryland, I was in the MBA program, I was getting my graduate degree, and I was asked to interview to be director of MBA admissions. At the time, I was associate director of corporate relations and development, and I interviewed and I didn't get it. And in hindsight, had I gotten it, I probably would have taken it because it seemed like it was a bigger job than the one that I had. In hindsight, what a awful mistake it would have been for me at that early stage, given what I love about what I do right now and where I've ended up. You, you, we all imagine these, had I taken that step, where would it have led? Yeah. And I think I would have missed so much about what I love about my job yeah. had I gone to be director of admissions. Nothing against the, my admissions colleagues. I think they do amazing work. It's just not what I'm called to do. And so that's a mistake that I didn't make, but I think about that all the time. Um, the mistake that I did make, and, and Mike Iker knows I tell this story, um, we were preparing, this was, he'd been at Hopkins maybe two years. We were preparing a very big solicitation, working with two of our deans. Uh, I can picture it. I can picture the conference room and, and I had the materials. It was, you know, a, a plastic spiral bound presentation deck that was going to go to the donor. And I had been working on it with Mike and we were meeting with the two deans to kind of prep this ask that they were going to make with Mike. And I had said to Mike, I really want to do the work on this. I want to, I want to feel a part of this big, big ask. And we were in the prep meeting with the deans, Mike and myself. 
and the deans were pushing back on some questions in the materials, some of the math, some of the budgets, some of the justifications. And I was trying to answer quickly realizing two things that I didn't know enough to answer the questions. And number two, I'd made some mistakes in the materials. Mike was embarrassed and I was embarrassed and he, he was frustrated. And I remember the deans left and I said to Mike, I'm going to fix this. And he said, I know you are. Walked down the hall. Um, I stayed at work and I've, t- I've told his wife the story because I just want to make sure I fact check. I stayed at work <laughs> until about nine o'clock that night, immersing myself into it, fixing the slides, fixing the deck. And I called him and I said, it's done. Are you still up? And he said, yep. I said, I'm driving to your house. So I drove out to his house. I knocked on the door. Inez, Mike's wife, opened the door. And I, she had this look on her face when I was standing there of, I know that you did something bad today because I know Mike was frustrated <laughs> with you. And I think you're here to make it better. So I hope it goes well for you. That, that was sort of the thought bubble above her head. And he was in his office in his house. And I went in and I handed it to him. And he said, thank you. I'll take a look at it. And that was the extent of it. Um, everything went well after that. But the the reason I do that sort of in such a, a dramatic way is because it was a moment that I will forever remember. You can't BS your way through stuff. You have to, it, it, at the level that we are operating at, the kind of ideas that we're trying to put in front of donors, you have to understand what's underneath it. And it was such a lesson to me, a guy that you know often would try to skim across the top. Yeah, You got to go deep and you got to be ready to defend it number one. And the other lesson that I have never let go of is at the end of the day, we are ultimately accountable for our own work. There's no blaming anybody else. There's nobody else to fix it. And you got to get in there and get your hands dirty, fixing it and making things right when you move forward. Um, so those were those that mistake probably affected me more in the moment than Mike will ever acknowledge. He's like, I don't remember that whole, like, I know you don't, but I do. And that's all that matters. So and and he let you sort of fix it. I like that. He did. He did. As yep. a manager, just give people the rooms to, to to make their own mistakes. I struggle with that the most. I'm like the worst micromanager in the world, but I'm I'm worried and and you know partially for their sake and partially for the organization's sake. But I you know I want to get in there and you know I, I think I'm starting to figure this out as a parent yep. that you just got to let. Sometimes you just have to give them space to just make their own mistakes. You do, and to fix them, and to fix them. Well, Fritz, um, this has been a real pleasure and an honor to talk to, um, and I appreciate it. I'm going to ask you one more question. If you are giving advice to somebody who's just starting out in advancement, right? There, so take yourself back to you know the the mid '90s, and you're getting you got your first job, and or you're thinking about your first job. Uh, you want to give somebody advice in that position, but but give it now. You know, somebody here we are in 2022. The world's very different than it was in the mid '90s. Yep. Um, what would that advice be? Yeah, it's 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 simple, and it's something that served me and serves me to this day. And I just had breakfast with Mike Iker Sunday morning, just to put the fine point on it. Um, in Chicago, the my advice is to build your network and be curious. Um, I have over my entire career, starting from the very first summer that I was a student at the Summer Institute at Dartmouth, connected with people and kept connections so that I had a network of professionals and colleagues out in the field that when I was stuck, when I needed inspiration, when I was curious about how something runs, 
I can pick up the phone and call you. I can pick up the phone and call a person at Stanford or Duke or wherever else. And I, I think I have gotten much, much better by virtue of looking at how other places do things, looking at how other programs do things. Um, and so my, my message to any newcomer is put your head down, work really hard, but also lift your head up and figure out how do you build your professional network in a way that enriches you, but also improves your competency, your skills. That's great. And uh, I think a, a wonderful way to end on behalf of Annual Giving Network. Um, I want to thank you for your time, Fritz. Um, you've always been a good friend. Uh, I consider you a mentor and I just I appreciate everything you share with us today. So thank you. Thanks, Dan. It's been a pleasure. Really enjoyed it. To learn more about our membership program and everything AGN has to offer, visit our website at annualgivingnetwork.com 